Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. Now these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy in the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, uh, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, which is the same name for Jacob, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in a field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told this to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks, their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flocks at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. He's a dutiful son. He's favored of his father. So he said, To him, go and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering uh, in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? He said, I am seeking my brothers. And he said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will come of his dreams. But then Reuben heard, and he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood, throw him in the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him from their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. 
And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. And their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh. And they carried them down to Egypt. And Judah, one of the brothers, said, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him from the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit, he saw Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment. He put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all the sons and all the daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar's, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This begins the saga of Joseph, the story of the final son of Jacob, the final section or chapter uh, collection of Genesis. Joseph is given to us as an image, not only a story, but also an image for instruction of understanding how God brings salvation through service. The capital head title of a sermon series is this, is that uh, Joseph is a servant who saves. And it's not just that, though. Because what we have here is not just a story, but a prophetic writing. These are the scriptures of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they are the canon, the covenant, um, the contract that God has given with this world for the salvation of this world. The story of Joseph is a prophetic revelation and exposes God's providential uh, intentions for the world. But on the face of it, as we just read now, on the face of it, it is essentially a story of Joseph as the youngest, is the youngest and favored son of his father, who is envied and despised by his brothers and consequently entered into a life of suffering uh, and service toward God and men. That is Joseph's life. But inside of that, there is a wisdom of Jesus Christ that beams through the story. It's like a light that comes through the stained glass window and colors the whole room. You can't read the story of Joseph without finding in it all the colors of Jesus Christ. This is more. This is a prophetic oracle. 
This is not just Joseph as a model for a servant who happens to also save people, but it is Joseph as a model that points to the true mediator, who is the true servant who actually really does truly save his people. All intended, all written and codified, and sung about and studied by young Jewish boys in synagogue for centuries before the arrival of the man who fulfills this perfectly as they're meditating on these prophecies in the same time. So when I was uh, a little boy, I noticed a difference between me and my brother is I would see this in home videos sometimes that I always would get into the pool on the, the shallow end and kind of work my way into the cold water. And uh, my brother would just jump in on the deep end and just get it all done real quick. Uh, and I, I, maybe he was right, and I recommend maybe it's easier to just jump in on the deep end. But maybe not when we're doing this uh, in a sermon series. Uh, we jumped in on the deep end of Genesis. We're in the back end of Genesis. Uh, what I hope to do in a moment here is to connect it all. To remember as if we were preaching through all of Genesis in one moment. That these things would be fresh on your mind. So that you would see what God is doing through Joseph in the book of Genesis. So here I'm, I'm uh, inviting you to enter into the pool on the shallow end. Come down the, 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 the stairs very slowly and it's a little cold. But I'm going to acclimate your uh, mind, your soul to uh, the waters of Genesis. How you're going to see this whole book is playing and climaxing to this moment with Joseph. The narrative of Genesis is a tale of two cities, truly. It is the city of man and it is the city of God. Adam and Eve fell from glory. And ever since they fell from glory, Genesis opens up by pointing to us the fact that the city of men is the city of vain glory. The city of men, the domain of where men live as they have fallen from glory in Adam and Eve, is that they are violently looking for honor and glory and uh, power and pride. And they uh, accumulate populations and culture to themselves to build this up. The Tower of Babel, for example. When Adam and Eve fell from glory, they were given tunics. The same word, ketoneth, which is given for the garment of Joseph. That's important. They were given the same word that Joseph was given by his father. A tunic. Something that covered down to the very bottoms of your shin or knee. They covered themselves with fig leaves. God said that was not sufficient. He gave them a tunic to cover all of their nakedness. But it was a tunic not made by plants. It was a tunic made by blood. And that tunic identified them on the outside with beast-like attributes. Think of that. They listened to a beast. A created being. A snake came to them. And lied to them. Did God say, you will not die God doesn't want you to be like him. He knows that you would be like him, knowing good and evil. Listening to the beast. Submitting to the beast. Serving the beast. And then God says, you must dress like a beast. And he kills a beast and gives them the garments of a beast. Covered in blood. And they have to wear this to cover their nakedness. 
We know that the idea of them being like a beast is hinted at two times immediately after they are clothed with beast skin. The Lord comes to Eve and says, Now, since you are cursed, and you have fallen from glory, and you are covered with the beast, your desire, your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. That word desire is only used a few times in all of scripture. It has to do with a violent hostility. Because you have been infected by the beast. It is not as though you were just wearing garments that look like beast garments. The purpose of garments all through scripture is to identify people. God is identifying us with animal-like violence. That, that it has infected us, that Jesus would say we are sons of Satan, in the fact that we have within us this beast-like idea or temperament, that we would have a desire of hostile domination, that the marriage would be so broken that now you will have a desire. Teshuka is the word to look up. The Hebrew word desire, that you would have a violent hostility towards your husband. And, and he will have a domineering rule over you because sin, the beast-like nature, has ruined it all. And one of the only a few times this word appears again is only a few verses later in which Cain breaks out against his brother like a violent animal. And he's warned before he did it. Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It's Desire, its desire is for you. And he lost. Crouching like a what? A lion, a bear, an animal, a beast. Some type of violent internal spiritual impulse is there. It is looking to take you, just like a lion. You must resist it. He did not. And what did he do? Acted as though a beast toward his brother and slaughtered him. This principle is played out through Scripture. Cain killed Abel. And he also was the first to ever build a city, we're told in Genesis. That Cain built a city. He was excised from the presence of God and went east of Eden, had a son and named him Enoch. And he named a city, which the word Enoch means recognition, title, to, to draw attention to yourself. The city of men, they love this. He named the city Enoch out of honor for him and his lineage and his son. Seven generations passed from Adam to Cain to a man named Lamech. Cain was a murderer. And seven generations from then, Lamech says that he killed a man for wounding him. That he killed a young man for harming him. Violence, the beast nature, the violence of the city of men is expanding. And these cities multiply across the world. In Genesis 10, we're told that empires form. And many have desire to dominate over other nations. And you have uh, Nimrod, who was a great mighty warrior, who took over many cities and nations. And they all came together in Genesis 11 to build a very strong tower to the glory of their own name so that they would reach the heavens. And then God washed it all away, that men corrupted themselves in this fashion. That's the city of men. At the same time, concurrently, there is a group of people 
who are looking for the city of God. We find that. Because though Cain killed Abel, Eve had another son named Seth and restored a whole other lineage of the family tree, a line that went this way. As Cain was going this way, building cities and murdering one another and building the foundations of cities on the shed blood of others, there was another man named Seth who had a son named Enosh. And Enosh means lowly, a lowly man, a humble man. And a whole entire way of living was parted down this lineage. As you find many different people in this lineage of Seth doing many different things, antithetical to those who are looking for the city of men through Cain. The seventh generation from Adam on Seth's side, his name was Enoch. And we're told that he walked with God. And God took him up. At the same time, all men were building cities to build themselves up to reach the heavens. There was Enoch who was not building a city. He was humbly walking with his Lord down on the earth, not seeking to find God or reach God in the heavens. Yet God was with him and God brought him up. And he didn't have to climb a ziggurat to get to it. Two different Completely different people. Noah comes and as people are building cities, he is building a boat. And the water washes it all away. And everything anyone has ever done in their life, everything anyone has ever accomplished in cultural pursuits, every city down to Cain's very first city was subdued and quieted and washed away by the waters. Yet Noah passed through and was rescued. And Abraham left the city of men in the Chaldeans because God said, I have a land for you. I have a name for you. I have a place for you. I have a people for you. And so that man Abraham comes out of the city of men and he is looking and he is wondering. And how does he look for the city? No other way that we're told in Genesis that anyone made cities or culture. It was always by war. It was always by subjugation. It was always by that desire to have and desire to be dominated and to rule over. That sin that is crouching at the door and always looking for violent men to take hold of this violent world by force. And you have Abraham walking, wandering, and only worshiping. He goes into the promised land that God said is his. He didn't do a jihad. He didn't raise a sword. He built an altar. And he just worshipped. The very first thing he did when he entered the promised land, he goes to the city of Shechem, where Jacob's sons were treating their flocks in the story this morning. He goes to Shechem and he builds an altar and he sacrifices to God there. And he builds another altar and another altar. As he goes through the promised land, he is simply building altars, waiting for God to bring down the city from heaven to earth, worshiping up to see why is this my promised land. It's not mine. I don't possess it. I don't even have a child. I'm patiently waiting that you will just give me the promises you say as I worship you. Now we know he had the ability to take the land. Because in Genesis 14, he conquered a very powerful king named Ketaloamar, who took his nephew Lot. He had highly trained military men within his own household that went and pursued the king of Ketelomar, defeated him, and rescued Lot. 
And they said to him, you are a mighty king among us. And what do you have as the spoils for your war? And Abraham said, nothing. I don't want you to give me anything. Because I don't want anyone to say that I've got this from you by taking it from you by force, by war. Like an animal. I'm looking for the city of God. I don't want you to ruin the city of God by saying, I took it from you in war. But he could have. But we never find him doing that. What is he looking for? The differences emerge then. That you have in this story of Genesis two ways of life. The city of men built on blood, built on vain glory, built on violence, built as animals would. And then you have the city of God built on humility and meekness and worship and service. Service. And that's the theme that's most beautifully picked up in the story of Joseph. Jesus has said, blessed are the poor. The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. You will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. You will inherit the earth. And he meant the real earth. So the purpose of our life, to ask it maybe afresh now with that context laid before us this morning is, what is the purpose of your life? How do you define the purpose of your life? There are many purposes you have, many hats you might wear, many endeavors you might give yourself to. What we have presented here is the purpose of your life is to die. Die to yourself in service toward others and God. That's the purpose of your life. Think of all the temporal goals or the ends of all your energies that you give your life to. Will they not all be taken away? Does this not necessarily by God's design have to end in your termination? So instead of resisting that or being undone by that, how about we lean into that and say, why? Lord, what do you want from me? Why is it that I should live as though just to die? We're encouraged by this. What was the point of Jesus' life? To die. They wanted him to rule as king. And he said, no, I was born so that I might die. I will have to go to that cross. I will die. That is the purpose of my life. And therefore for us is to ask, is that the same? Is that our purpose? Romans 12. 1 is the appeal. I appeal to you, Paul says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your acceptable act of spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship, it says. The other way to translate that is, it is your reasonable service. The purpose of your life, what is that? Well, there's a reason. I appeal, Paul is appealing to you and I to say, 
this is the purpose of your life. I appeal to you to present your body as a living sacrifice. That is, in your living, die. The purpose of your life is death. You are to live so that you might sacrifice. You are to live so you might give. You've been given everything so you might exhaust it all down to your final breath. You are first endued with power and life and vivification and breath so that you might exhaust that. That you might give it up. If you hold on to your life, you die. If you give it up, you find life. The purpose we have life for is so that we might give it away. So that we might die well. That we might serve. And the very incarnation of God comes into the world so that he would show us it's not about building these cities. It's not about killing each other. It's about putting yourself in the place that you would give your own life away for others. That's love. Now, there's no atonement behind that, but that is the model that Jesus has given us. And we always could say this, well, that was Jesus. He needed to die to take away the sins of the world. And you and I are definitely not up for that task. That's true. But Jesus is not Joseph. And we're studying Joseph. The beauty of the images. There's a model, a manner of living in Joseph's life. Joseph, here we have, as we read, serving his father. And every episode of Joseph's life, as it is given to us, it is an episode of service. He serves his father here, better than all his brothers, living righteously. He is a judge to his brothers. He tattles on his brothers which is what younger brothers are supposed to do anyway. But there's more to it than that. Of course, maybe we could say that as we read the story. There is him tattling on his brothers. But he is a judge to his brothers. He is the one who is coming to his brothers and saying that is wrong. And his father likes him because he is honorable. He gives him a cloak. He is sold into slavery and he becomes a service to Potiphar, as we read. The captain of the guard and Pharaoh, he served him. And was exalted to be his right hand man. Then he is put inside of jail. In Egypt he will be imprisoned. And what will he do? In prison, locked up in chains. Just serve. He becomes the jail master. The jail master hires him to manage the prison. Because he's always putting himself wherever he goes just to serve. And he comes out of jail. Serving, interpreting dreams. And where does he go? Second in command with Pharaoh. Above all of Egypt. Serving Pharaoh. All of the episodes of Joseph's life are simply nothing more than him serving in any position and every capacity that God has placed him. So it is a model for the manner of our living. But Joseph finds himself to be a model for the mediator that is to come. Because in Luke 24, Jesus himself said that when he was speaking to explain all of what Moses and the prophets have said... He said that they were writing about me. You cannot, and we are not allowed to read this without finding Christ. According to Christ's own interpretation. So here we have Joseph presented to us this morning. This youngest son, the favored son of his old age. We know that service is important. There's even been uh, studies done for uh, uh, Members of senior citizen homes, if they have a plant to water, 
They live longer. They have joy. We were given for service. Just to the fact that even if there is something that you have to take care of, there is a reason for your life. If you have no reason to serve anybody or anything, even down to a dog or a puppy or even to water a plant in the morning, say you are at the later stages of your life and your abilities are limited, if you can get up in the morning and water a plant, you're doing nothing more than what God has called Adam and Eve to do at the beginning in the garden. But if you don't have a plant to water, you die earlier. You are depressed, even there in a nursing home bed. We were made to have to do something for something else. Without that, without that service, that is nothing to the point of our life. So Joseph is a man of service. He's given this tunic, a multicolored tunic, we're told, is the title. It actually, it could be translated a tunic that has uh, long sleeves. It's a tunic that not only has a long bottom, it's a unique tunic that probably has sleeves down uh, to the wrist or elbows. It made it unique. It was something that we're told in 2 Samuel 13 that uh, children of kings wore. It was a, a royal thing to have. Uh, a long sleeve tunic or a hand or an arm or multicolored. It comes from the Greek translation, which isn't what the Hebrew says. So there's debate on this, but it has to do with some type of tunic that is honored that is dignified, that is holy, that distinguishes him from all his other brothers, that distinguishes him as being someone who is unique and set apart, someone who is particularly favored, and someone who would line up maybe for an inheritance right, somebody who is um, the inherited dignitary of the father or the king of the house. And obviously with that understanding of what the word could mean, you see how the brothers are incensed by that. He's in his teens. His older, older brother Reuben is a, a full-grown man. And all his other brothers before him. And here is Joseph, this young tattletale, little bit of a brat perhaps, little presumptuous, bragging about his dreams. And he's got this dang garment, this robe that makes him look so much better favored by his father because he serves his father the very first thing we're told about Joseph is he brought a bad report of his brothers to his father he's serving him he's keeping tabs on his family remember earlier in Genesis you have Levi going into the city of Shechem and slaughtering people Doing evil things. These boys are bad boys. The father is happy to have a son who can go around and say, what are your brothers up to? What are they getting in trouble with? He's serving them. He goes and says to, your brother, he says to Joseph, go to your brothers who are pastoring in Shechem. And Joseph sent him, go see what they are doing if it is well and send word. Now Joseph finds them in Shechem, that same city in which they slaughtered a bunch of people in Genesis 34. And they're not there. They're up in Dothan. Why? We're not told. Are they doing something wrong? Joseph's there to find out. From the distance they see him and they say nothing more than, look, here comes the dreamer. That dreamer of dreams. Let us come and kill him and throw him into this pit. We'll say that fierce animals have devoured him. And then we'll see what truly has come of his dreams. 
The fact that he would be one of those sheaves with all the others bowing down to him. The fact that he would be that star with all the other stars bowing down to him. The sun and the moon, his father and mother. What was Abraham's prophecy? Abraham was promised that he would have children as numerous as the stars of the heavens. But Abraham was the first of that promise. Why should one little star of all the other stars of the children of Israel be exalted above them? Why should all the other stars, who are particularly the older brothers, bow down to this little one? Why would the Lord have the Messiah come, meek and lowly? Why would he be born in a manger? Why would he not have a pedigree? Why would he be so much like Joseph? Why would it not match up with all the expectations? Why would all the other stars bow down to this one star, this morning star of the dawn, the brightest of all the stars? That is offensive, especially to the city of men, which revels in its own glory. All of this is wrapped up in God's prophetic storytelling. To prepare the mind of us as children to interpret the deeper things of God. Reuben, the oldest brother who's most responsible, intervenes and he says, Let us shed no blood. Do not throw him in the pit. And he spared him. And so they sat down, of course, after maybe just killing brother, brother, and not killing their brother, to eat lunch. Which puts in perspective what's going on here. These are wicked men. They've killed a whole city in Shechem before. And this is the people of God in the Bible. So they have lunch. And they see some slavers. Ishmaelites. And Judah has the capitalist of the group says, Why can we not profit from him? Why should we conceal his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And here is his reason. For he is our brother. After all, he is our flesh. And so they sold him for silver. How remarkable. They took his robe. They slaughtered a goat. They dipped it in blood. You see the wisdom of Christ in this. Do you see the robe dipped with that? The light breaking through. Filling the whole room of this story to see the color of Jesus and everything. Which is the color of crimson. Which is this. That there would be the son who gave himself and was dethroned. Taken away from all his glory. His robes ripped apart from him. And then he was covered in blood. And that robe dipped in blood. It's all here. It's all present. This whole thing is like the stained glass, red stained glass window of the light of Christ beaming through the story. The crimson color of Jesus' own red blood coming through, prophesying, whispering. These simple stories at the beginning of the revelation of the oracles of God in Genesis just whispering hints of what to look for. Giving spiritual sensitivity, not overt prophecies that are falsified or verified like Jesus Christ will be born of Bethlehem and he will do these things and he will do such and such as Isaiah. These are children's stories. They're true, but they are given in such a way so that the mind will begin to set a deep subset, subconscious, the psychology of the Messiah to prepare the people of God to understand when he comes into the world, he will come like this. But the beast, the fallen nature, though meditating on these prophecies years and years again, when he came, 
they took his robes and said, well, he is our brother. Look at him. He is just our flesh. He is like us, but unlike us. That robe he wears is, it's just not the kind of robe that I have. He's better than me. He's righteous. He's holy. He's glorious. And I can't bear him. We have to kill him. He was and is our brother. He clothed himself in our flesh. John 1.11 says he came to his own. His own. His own brothers, his own flesh, and they received him not. And so they took that robe and they sent it to their father. Ahead of them, most likely, through Amazon or FedEx. And said, look at this. Look at this evidence we found. We just found it. They didn't want to be present at the moment for him to see it. They didn't want all the emotion of them internalizing the fact that the father lost his son, his beloved son. The father gave his son. The son died. He set this robe and said, look, we found this. Please identify, is this your son's? What did he say? A fierce animal has surely devoured him. You see? He's right. He's wrong, but he's right. That's the point. From Cain to Abel, wearing garments of animals, sinful desire crouching to take you, desires to have you, you must master it. They have not. And they are the animals. A fierce, animalistic instinct. The sinful human heart. City of men again has devoured him. And this is exactly how the Lord saved you and I. Joseph was exalted with the robe of his father. He humbled himself into serving his father into slavery in the pit. And then he was re-exalted, a higher exaltation to be above all those in all of Egypt, the superpower of the world. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, The word in the beginning who was God and is God. Exalted and unapproachable, eternal light. Truly God of all gods. Humbled himself. Came down. Why? His father sent him. Keep your robe. You are my son. There's none like you in perfect righteousness and holiness and goodness. But go to your brothers. Take on their likeness. Be of their brother. Be of their flesh. And go to them and find and see how it is. And he humbled himself. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And even though he being found in the form of human, humanity, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself. And they said to him, oh, here he comes. Look at him, this man who says, I am the bread of life. 
Look at him, this man who says, I am the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look at this man who says, before Abraham was, and all the other stars of Israel were, I am. That offended them enough that they said, let us see what will become of this dreamer of dreams. We will kill him and throw him in a pit and see what comes of his dreams. Therefore, God has highly exalted him today. And we are here today to say that there is a Joseph who reigns in Egypt. There is a Joseph who sits at the right hand of the Father. And he rules with all dominion and authority and power. That therefore, God has highly exalted him, even in a way of his incarnation that was not there before. Highly exalted and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. All the sheaves of wheat will fall down. All the stars of the celestial heavens will come to this great morning star and prostrate themselves before him. And every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father who sent him. This, this is an oracle of God locked in for the arrival of the Son, whom we worship today. Dear Lord, we pray that this oracle, this wisdom, this prophecy would unfold before us. Lord, we ask that you would show us the beautiful intentions of how you have codified your word before your actions so that when we see your actions, we know they are of your word. Your wisdom is great. Your salvation is sure. Lord Jesus, we exalt you as the one who has robes of righteousness that are not like ours. We do bow down. We see you as the brightest star of them all. We worship you and praise you. Amen.